So we are, uh, obviously, have been talking about Stephen, but we're in Acts chapter 7, uh, and we're looking at, at Stephen, and this is actually uh, the longest sermon in the book of Acts. It might be one of the longer ones in <laughs> all of the scriptures. So we get to see here a, one of the earliest examples of a defense of the Christian faith. So we had Peter give two sermons already, where he's proclaiming, here's, here's what Pentecost is, and here's who this Jesus is. But here now we have a, a, a Stephen explaining how this faith is a biblical faith. Not, not that Peter didn't do that, but we're going to see something different tonight. And I'm not going to read the whole sermon and then talk about it. I'm going to take chunks and then explain it as we go, because it's really long, and we'll see how far we get tonight. Um, and it's funny because uh, in, in different, reading different comments about Stephen's sermon, a lot of people say, well, he's just kind of rambling. <laughs> it doesn't make sense of why he's charged with these things before the Sanhedrin, and then it just sounds like he rambles through scriptures. But that's not what he does here. He actually is very, very strategic. We're in Acts chapter 7 tonight. But he's, he gives a very reasoned defense but it's because of who he was talking to. He was talking to the smartest Jewish leaders. They were the teachers. This is the Sanhedrin. And so he had to prove that what his proclamation was, this Jesus, he had to prove that it was biblical. He had to use the scriptures. And so we see him just using passage after passage and building his defense. And uh, I, it's, it's one of those lessons for us, for sure, to learn. But before we dig into it, um, I want to talk about heroes of the faith, because Stephen is one of those heroes. I mean, he's, he's given a, a chapter and a half of room in Scripture. And so this is a man who stands out. He's not even an apostle. Um, but in my life, I mean, it makes me look for who are the heroes in my, my own life? Who are the heroes that I actually want to be someone's hero too? I mean, for my kids, I want them to have a dad they can look up to, Right? And for, for kids who go to this church, we, I hope we all feel that, that we want to be, in a sense, their heroes that they can look at and say, that's what a Christian looks like. Because kids are looking, they're learning, they're absorbing. So in the heroes, you know, in my life, the ones looking back over my life, are the people who I see living and loving God, and people who in their own way, in their own uh, platform... Whether it's, you know, I'm a pastor, my platform is the church and, and teaching on Sunday nights and in Sunday mornings. But some people, it's, their platform is the nursery. Or it's, it's behind the scenes taking care of the communion cups. Or it's, it's a, a man on a soccer field who says, my ministry is to reach soccer players and to challenge them to think beyond sports and beyond winning games. Those are the heroes in my book. The people who, who are faithful to obey day by day. Stephen didn't just magically appear and God says, hey, you're one of my, you're going to be, you know, you're not an apostle, but you're going to be a superstar. That didn't happen to Stephen. He appears on the scene in Acts chapter 6 as one of the men that the congregation, the body, the, remember there's probably about 20,000. He was one of the men that so stood out by his personal example and his example of one, knowing the word, but being involved in the body and serving. 
He wasn't, he wasn't sitting on the sidelines and then they asked him to serve. He was somebody that already had the reputation for that. And so he appears because he's been part of this new body and he's been active in it. And as we see him in Acts 7, we also will see that he is a man who knows the word. When he, when he, every, almost every sentence, he's referring to a passage to back up what he's saying. And to me, he's such a wonderful example of what it means to be a person who's ready to be used by God in just his example to us of he knows the word and he's actively serving and helping people and his reputation in the community. And I'm not talking about the big controversy where they're mad at him, you know, when he was, you know, in the synagogue of the freedmen. But before that, he had, he was a man of good repute, it says. He had, a, he had an example of a man full of wisdom and of the spirit with good reputation in the body and outside in the community. And these are the kind of people that God uses, right? Behind the scenes, but you know what? We'll find out that <laughs> when we stand before the Lord, you know, there's going to be some people who are going getting, to get, be getting so many rewards from the Lord that we never would expect because they were faithful with what God had given them, with the platform they had been given to be faithful every day in just little ways. I want to be somebody who's, you know, faithful to be a blessing in the church. I want to be a person who's faithful to God in the community where, where, you know, God looks good because of how I live. He looks good by how his people are. And, and that's what we see in Stephen. Somebody, I want to be somebody who, who, has, who has the flavor of the gospel. Where am I getting that from? That idea of being a, a giving a good flavor for the gospel. We're supposed to be salt and light. Salt? Flavoring? We're supposed to, we're supposed to be, have, when people come and rub shoulders with us as Christians, they, there should be a, a mark left or a, a taste, right? Where they say, you know what, there's something different about them and it was pleasant. Right? What is that hope they have? And, that's, and the heroes in my life have been people like this, where you just walk away after talking to them saying, you know what, that's somebody, that's somebody special. I want to get to know them more. And uh, I just contacted an old, one of my old friends who it's now been over. He, I knew him before I met Renee, and he's just an, an older gentleman, good friend. But that's the kind of person I want to be. Those are the heroes of the faith. My biggest heroes are not the people who you see on TV, Although I respect certain pastors, I mean, certain ones we all know, but my heroes are the ones who are faithful without any acclaim, who are faithful day by day, and they will, they will give you the shirt off their back because that's, that's who they are. And we see that in Stephen. I think of that, and I've mentioned it before, that sweet mom of eight kids who has served in the nursery for 40 years every Sunday to be a blessing to other moms. I think I mentioned that before. She's one of our heroes. We'll probably see her uh, pretty soon here. I, I think of that, that, that man who was a new believer, converted in his 40s, and he started serving, and I've mentioned before, but just by pouring grape juice. Hey, how can I help? And he started pouring grape juice. As a new believer, he knew practically nothing about the faith, but he just started pouring the grape juice and he's just faithful to come to church, and pretty now he's, yeah, I just talked to him well, a few weeks ago, and I said, well, how many guys are you counseling or discipling right now? He goes, I think, and he starts, I think eight, 
I had two that finished up just last week, but yeah, eight guys, and I go, oh my goodness, if I'm doing two cases, that's overwhelming, his eight. He's just, and he took a second career as painting, and he, he has a reputation in the community where he will underbid anyone but do the best job because he doesn't need the money, but he's just doing it because he's active and he gets to be a blessing and he will, he will do it for free for single moms who can, you know, it's just, this guy's amazing. That, that to me, that what a testimony. What a testimony he has. I think of a CEO of a Fortune 500 company who I, I met as a, as a young pastor and uh, I didn't know who he was, and he just wanted to take me out to coffee when I joined staff, and I was starting to do some of the counseling, and he just wanted to get to know. He says, hey, you know, I'm discipling some of these guys, and just wouldn't know, do you have any, you know, insights for me? He was an older gentleman. I didn't know who he was, and I was just, oh, sure, you know, and I got to know him, and I mean, I didn't think I knew everything, but just the fact that he wanted to talk to me about it. Well, it turns out he is the CEO of Transamerica one of the top companies in the world, and he discipled tons of guys. And he's gone on to be with the Lord, but he never mentioned that. I had to find this out later. His wife actually was on her counseling staff, sweet gal, and I was like, what a couple. What a humble couple who just knew, hey, I may not be a pastor, but I get to serve, and I want to serve. I want to make a difference. He wasn't looking at his pocketbook. He was looking at, who am I investing in? What a man. I think of another man who, uh, in his 40s, he had a sudden, he was, he was hit by a, a stroke, playing softball. He's pitching, and all of a sudden, he's, he's collapsed, he's down, he almost dies, and uh, he has to retire, but, you know, he's financially, he's okay, and he ends up volunteering as, you know, on staff at a church, and he ends up being the exec pastor, and he just donated his time, and he helped that church with his skills because he says, of course, what else am I going to do? I'm going to help the church. And he just, he did it from a wheelchair. Man, to me, that's just like, wow. You know, those kind of people that they were used by God that I got to see. And there's just countless people like that throughout history that, so when I preach on Stephen, a man used by God, I think of these kind of people who model the same kind of character as Stephen. And I want the same. I want the same you know, and I challenge us to all be thinking, because wherever we're at in life, we can be used by God like a Stephen. So let's, let's be challenged by him. You know, uh, <laughs> let's be challenged by the people we see. You know, we want to find people in our church, want to encourage them. I mean, I, I hope that if you look around the church and you see people who are building into others, man, take time to say thank you. I mean, I talked about that this morning in the service, right? Taming the tongue, but the positive side is be a blessing to others. So if you see somebody who week after week is in the nursery or with the kids or coming to volunteer time, you know, last minute using your skills, man, tell them, tell them thank you. You know, because that's, that's what we want to see. We, we, with, there's more people who had that mindset. Uh, the church would be just a, a place that would just be more vibrant and, you know, I think of Philippians 3.17. My favorite passage is forgetting what lies behind. You know, I'm straining forward, and I'm pressing on towards the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know, I'm pressing on towards the goal. So I was a soccer player as a new Christian, so that was my favorite verse, Philippians 3.12 and 13. But verse 17 says, Brothers, join in imitating me, just like he said earlier, hey, imitate me as I imitate the Lord, right? So it's discipleship. But he says this, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And he's been using running imagery in Philippians 3 towards the end. 
He's saying basically run with winners. You want to run successfully as a Christian, find others you can draft off of and follow. Learn from them. And so these are the people who have played a huge role in my life over the years of people who are just faithful, who are people ready to be used and were being used by God. So that's, that's what I think of when I, when I read of Stephen, I think of these people. And, and I want us to be you know, challenged by him as well. So draw us, to draw us now, okay, there we go. That's kind of the setup, what I think about when I think of Stephen. But to draw us back in Acts and the flow of the book, we have to remember Jesus is building his church, right? By the Spirit, because remember, he, he ascended to heaven and he sent the Spirit. And the Spirit is now working to build the church. He's using the apostles, and the apostles are out there spreading the gospel. And, and it's not just the apostles building. Just we see Stephen here, and then we're going to hear about Philip in a moment, and then we're going to hear another uh, person get involved in the mix. Who's the second biggest character in the book of Acts? Paul. He gets introduced here in this passage. But we, we see the church being built, and, and actually Stephen serves as in a very important transition he was, he, was, he was picked within the church to solve a problem. Do you guys remember what the problem was in Acts, the beginning of Acts? Okay, it was the meal situation. The Hellenistic Jewish Christian widows were being neglected in the Jerusalem church because there was a little bias in there. He, he, the the Israel-based Jewish Christians, there's a bias versus the Hellenistic ones, the ones from outside Israel. And he was, he was introduced into this scene because he was a Hellenistic Jewish Christian convert. So he was part of the solution to this problem. But, but, this, but this is also a trigger. Hey, the gospel is now going, it's giving us hints, it's going to start going outside Israel. This is the first transition. Matter of fact, his martyrdom becomes the catalyst to get Christians out of Jerusalem. And we see the gospel start going outward. In Luke, Luke wrote both the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. We see in Luke, we see there's a, a drive from northern Israel down to Jerusalem, where Jesus is finally crucified, and then we have the resurrection. And in Acts, we see it start in Jerusalem and then go outside of Israel to the ends of the earth. There's a real geographic theme in here. But this is the transition Stephen becomes the transition from devout Jews in Jerusalem, start moving on out to the ends of the earth. We have the Hebraic Jews in chapters 2 through 5, the Hellenistic Jews in chapters 6 through 8. We have the Samaritans in chapter 8. We'll be looking at that next week and why that's a big hurdle. We, we think about the Good Samaritan. We know that parable. Well, that's it's a huge obstacle in the Jewish mind as we see the gospel conquering these prejudices, these, God, these obstacles, we see the gospels just overrunning them in the book of Acts. We have, in chapter 8, we have the Ethiopian, Ethiopian eunuch, right? Ethiopia, in their mind, that's at the, the southern part of the known world at that time. So, but also, he's a eunuch. And in, in Old Testament, he, you know, the Hebrew scriptures, he would be considered unclean and he wouldn't be allowed to be in the temple. But here, when he becomes a Christian, he says, what's keeping me from being baptized? We'll see that. But it's another obstacle. It doesn't matter. These things don't matter anymore, whether you're Jew or Gentile. It's Jesus Christ and what he can do in this new covenant. 
And then finally, the big hurdle is, again, the Gentiles. And, and it, it's not like, hey, there's some Gentile who's going to become a Christian. He's like the epitome of the worst Gentile, Cornelius. Why was he the worst? A Roman centurion, Rome, the empire of Rome, and he's a centurion. He is one of the rulers, I mean, one of the ones who carries the sword on behalf of Rome. And so to see that obstacle overcome, amazing. So we're in the flow of the book of Acts. Stephen is a transition. So it's help, it helps us understand, you know, the structure of Acts and the spread of the gospel. God does things very orderly, and we see things just being overcome here. And again, we, we're not just learning about the structure of Acts so you can, you know, pass some tests. We're also looking at a man that becomes an example to us. He's a man of good repute, godly character, both within the church and the community, a man full of wisdom and spirit. He was controlled by the spirit, obeyed the word. The word guided his life, and the word was applied into the everyday practical choices of life. He served the body to build it up, to, to be the solution to that problem. He reached out in evangelism, disputing with those from his own background, the synagogue of the freedmen. And then he understood and proclaimed this, this word. He showed, he demonstrated the rock-solid foundation of Christianity is truly Judaism. I'll make the claim, and some people are like, huh? Christianity is truly biblical Judaism. Before Jesus came, the only true religion in the world was Judaism, the, the religion of the Jews, Yahweh, the God of the Jews. When Jesus came, he didn't end Judaism. He's the fulfillment of true Hebrew religion. He's the Messiah. So in one sense, we are biblical Judaism. Jesus is a Jew, right? So, so, but we see Stephen defending that, you know, because the charges, he'll be leveled some charge. We'll look at that in a moment. But his defense becomes a really a good journey for us uh, to see how the scriptures, knowing the scriptures is essential. I mean, some people I know only read the New Testament. I'm like, what in the world? The early church had no New Testament. I mean, it's probably, I'll just throw out a number, five years before they had anything but what we call the Old Testament. I mean, when Dr. MacArthur was here, what, a summer and a half ago, right, two summers ago, uh, he preached on what? Do you remember? Isaiah 53, what did he call it? The gospel. You guys, if you look at Isaiah 53, if you remember him walking through it, the book he's got is called, I think it's called The Lamb of God. This, it's the book based on his sermon. But if you look at that, there, it has the most... In one passage, the best uh, packaging of what the gospel is in all of its aspects. If you look at the New Testament, we'll have John 3, 16 and 17 over here. We'll have, you know, the, it's presented 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11 over here. But they say it in different, Romans 3, 21 through 26. I mean, just go to different passages and it'll give you propitiation here, atonement here, uh, saved by grace over here. I mean, but in Isaiah 53... You have all those aspects in that passage. So, folks, we need to know the Old Testament. I mean, one of the things I did at a church I served at is I preached for 22 weeks. I did a survey of Genesis through mid-Exodus because every theme in the New Testament is all there in seed form. And, it, and the New Testament doesn't make that much sense without knowing that. 
And so we see Stephen modeling this, taking the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, and saying, here's why what we believe in about this Jesus, why it's right. And he turns the charges on, on its head and he indicts those who are trying to indict him. We'll see that in this passage today. So all that's for a setup. All right, that's kind of getting us ready as we walk through it. And, uh, and again, it's a narrative. It's a long sermon. So as we walk through it, you know, we'll be mentioning different passages. But I want you to get the overall structure. And I think the outline will help you stick with it to some degree. So first of all, let's, let's start looking in, in verse, verse 1. Verse 1, we have the actual, okay, Stephen, here's what they've said about you, Right? And so, are these things so? Verse 1, the charges are leveled. Again, let me remind you of what they said. And they set up false witnesses, verse 13 of chapter 6, who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, the temple, and the law, right? The law, the law of Moses that they received at Mount Sinai. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Earlier, it says that, they, that he, they charged him with speaking blasphemy against God, okay? And, and in verse 11, and against Moses. So those are the charges. And now he's, he's before the Sanhedrin and said, are these things so? Charges are on the table here. Stephen, what do you have to say for yourself? You're a blasphemer. That's what they're saying. Against the law, the temple, the customs delivered by Moses in the, in the Mosaic law. And it's really, it's a challenge. Hey, you are challenging God's authority in his word, God's plan. Blasphemy, that's, what is, what is the, uh, what is the consequences of the charge of blasphemy? And, and, yeah, kill him, right? So this is, this is serious stuff. And he's being aligned with the person they had just crucified, not far from where he was standing, Jesus of Nazareth. So Stephen's defense, as he lays it out in verses 2 through 50, it's a scriptural defense, answering charges. He, he exalts the God of Abraham. He supports Moses and Joseph in God's plan of redemption and the, even the blessing of the temple. But then he turns the tables in his defense. Indeed, he ends up indicting his accusers that they were the ones who were fighting God instead of him. Again, he's a Hellenistic Jew. He has that against him. That's going against him. He's standing before the Sanhedrin, suspicious about him. Remember, I talked about the prejudice within Jerusalem. There was prejudice. Who is this guy? And he's a Jewish Christian. So what is this? Who, you guys are filling, Jeru filling this city with your teaching. And, and then in his defense, it demonstrates that he knows clearly God's plan of redemption. When we talk about redemption, we don't talk about it starting with Jesus Christ. God's plan of redemption actually starts all the way back in Genesis 3. The seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. That's the first taste that God had a plan to take care of the problem of sin. And then he picks a specific people to bring about that redemption, the Jews, with Abraham. And he shows this. He displays incredible knowledge about God's word and summarizing the teaching. It's not a rambling speech, but it's pointed, and he shows the flow of God's plan 
and purposes. And, and he shows that the greatest enemies of God's plan were from within the people of Israel. And he will show that. He will show that God's own people opposed God's deliverers and God's plan. And he says, you know what? You guys are part of the very same. That's your lineage. Matter of fact, those opposed Christ are opposing God's greatest deliverer. It's a masterful exposition building to a point and culminates in their indictment. He's fearless. He's faithful. He's measured. He's insightful. And he's not yelling. (laughs) And when he's going to die, we will see that this man full of spirit and wisdom, how does he die? With peace. Receive my spirit. Lord, don't hold this against them. And then it says he entered, he, he entered the rest. And, and you see the opposite, opposite reaction of those wanting to kill him. It says they were in a frenzy. They were in a rage. And yet here's a man full of wisdom and spirit who's just at rest with the Lord and comfortable and who I know whom I believed in. Right? And that was a great hymn because that's, that is Stephen. He was just so set in knowing, knowing who this Jesus is, was absolutely convinced. So he begins to answer this, this whole thing about you've blasphemed against God. And right away, the first thing he says, he says, and Stephen said, brothers and fathers, okay, brothers and fathers, we're Jews, same background, we're, we're part of this people. Hear me, the God of glory, that title is, that is one of the titles of God. This is, this is the God of glory. This comes right out of Psalm 29.3. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord, Yahweh, over many waters. So him using that title, he's saying, no, I believe in this God. Yahweh is the Yahweh of, of the Jews. We're, we're on the same team here. I've not, blasphemed from, I've not blasphemed God. Matter of fact, I'm going to show you now. He says, brothers and fathers, hear me. Verse 2. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, our father Abraham, when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Okay, so ge- geography, Mesopotamia, think of Iraq. Babylon, it's down in that area. And, and he was a, God called him out of Mesopotamia. And, and so was he in the land of Israel? Was there any temple? Well, there were false temples there, right? But see, again, he's laying the seeds because, see, they're saying, God, he's blaspheming God and this temple and the, and the, and the laws of Moses. And, and, you know, he's a Hellenistic Jew and, and you know, he's got this foreign teaching. He's, he's going to show that, no, God, God, he's the God of glory, and, but he's a God who's a, he's a traveling God. He went and called Abraham out of, out of Babylon, Mesopotamia. And, and, then, and then he goes up, because you didn't go straight across from Mesopotamia over to, you didn't go directly west, you had to go up to the north, you had to follow the Fertile Crescent, because you couldn't, the desert's almost impassable. He goes up to Haran, stays there for a few years with his family, his father, Nahor, and, or Terah, oh my goodness, Terah, thank you. And, and then he's there for a while. And then he, he ends up, then God says, okay, time for you to leave. And then from there, he travels down into Canaan. 
the promised land, the land that God's saying, I'm going to give you. This is the land where I want you to go. And, and so we see that God meets him outside the land and, and calls him. And, and what, was, what was Abraham's, what was, he, what was he doing to show that he, he actually believed in God? He obeyed. Did he have all these dietary restrictions? Did he have circumcision? He didn't have any of those things, right? That came later. And again, in the Jewish mind, we have to, the circumcision and all the dietary restrictions and all the festivals and feasts that came under the Mosaic law at Mount Sinai came much later. He's starting to show that the God's plan of redemption didn't include all those other things. There was no temple at this time. God called Abraham, and Abraham obeyed, and he came on a journey to end up at the promised land. But he's referring, again, Genesis chapter, the end of Genesis chapter 11. And then he says, Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. What is he referring to? Genesis 12. He made a covenant with him several different places in Genesis. Genesis 12, 15, 17, I think 22. God affirming, hey, believe. Will you believe me? This is because, remember, Abraham didn't have have a, a town of his own. He didn't have any land that was his land. The only place he ever bought was was a cave to get buried in. We find out later that he also bought another one, too, that Jacob had to rebuy, but we'll get back to that later. But again, he's referring to the Abrahamic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, says, God says, I'm going to give you land and descendants, and I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. So he's demonstrating, look, Being a follower of God has to do with God calling and calling out Abraham and choosing him. And it was a a life of obedience and trusting in God. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and inflict them 400 years. What is he talking about there? Yeah, they're going to go to Egypt. God told them that. He says, hey, this, this land is going to belong to you. Actually, it's to your descendants. As far as you can see, Genesis 15, it's going to belong to them, but not yet. There's going to be a little detour, right, going outside the land, right? And he's saying, look, I will, I will take, this is going to be yours, but it's going to take some time. Will you trust me? Will you trust me? No place to dwell for Abraham or his immediate descendants, but, but afterwards it would. They'd be outside the land and again at some point. So, so I'm, they're going to be enslaved and afflicted for 400 years. How's that a promise, right? They are going to be, your descendants are going to be enslaved for longer than the United States has been a country. Think about that, you guys. Think about our country in our history. You all had U.S. history, I'm assuming, in the educational system. There's a lot that's happened in 200, what, 50 years about? (laughs) 
Oh, Abraham, your descendants, they're going to be there for 400 years before they can come back. So when we talk about God's timetable, we're in, a, we're in a culture that says, I want things now. God says, I'll do things when I'm ready. Will you trust me? Will you trust me? Will you be faithful today, even if you're not getting what you think you should get? Abraham trusted him. And, and, and he says, but I will judge the nation that they serve. And boy, did he. Did he not? When they came out, it was because of the ten plagues, the final one culminating in the, you know, the killing of the firstborn in Exodus chapter 12, uh, the firstborn of all those who didn't hide under the blood. I mean, that's a whole story in itself, isn't it? The picture of the Passover and all that. And then, and then there, that wasn't the only time the Egyptians suffered because after the Jews fled... What happened at the Red Sea? It says the whole army was crushed. They were drowned in the waters of the Red Sea. So there was a major, and it says that the Jews plundered the Egyptians. As they were leaving, they, God says, hey, ask them, because it, it, ask them for their treasures. And they gave them. It says they were overwhelmed with what, they were give, what the Egyptians were giving them as they left. It, and for, it was actually a form of payment for 400 years. It's kind of interesting. But God judged that nation. But I will judge that nation whom they serve, verse 7, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. Circumcision did not happen right away. Matter of fact, we know that Abraham was counted righteous before God before circumcision happened. Again, in the Jewish mindset, we have to remember that order, Paul makes a big deal about in Galatians. That chronology makes all sorts of difference to prove that salvation is not by what marks you wear on your body, but about believing in what God has provided, right? Believing in, in the son he's provided to die in our place. But again, all this happened outside the land, no temple yet. He's showing, no, God's not the God of the temple. God is God, and he's the God of all the nations. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. He's just walking through history, biblical history, to show that God has a plan and it's developing. And, and, and again, he's, he's showing that I, I agree with this plan is what he's saying. I, I believe in this. This is what I hold to. But now he starts changing things a little bit. He brings up Joseph. So we're now talking about Genesis chapter 36 through 50. All right, so now he walks in. This is a very important character in biblical history because he really is an example, someone who's pointing forward to the Christ who would come. He is God's deliverer at one point in Jewish history. He says this, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. And this is the story of where, you know, he's, he's at this point, at the point when the story happens, he's the youngest of the brothers. Benjamin's not there yet. Or if he is, he's really little. But he's, he's picked out as special by his father, right? And, and he's, he's the one who gets all the special attention. He's the loved one of, of the loved wife. And the brothers are jealous. And matter of fact, he's given a coat that makes him stand out. He's the one who is the favored one. And his brothers are not good guys. 
They hate him. They're jealous of him. Matter of fact, one of the reasons, and one of the probably the biggest reason, is that God sent the Jews down to Egypt. Yes, there was a famine that he saved them from, but if you notice that Joseph's story starts in Genesis 36. But Genesis 37 has a weird story about Judah and his daughter-in-law, right? If you know that, that story is there where he basically, he, it, it's there. I'm not making this up, but he, his, he, wasn't being, he wasn't obeying God's law of providing another husband when her husband died, one of his sons. She was supposed to get the next son in, in line so that she could have a child who would be a descendant who would take care of her. It was a way that you know, your family would take care of you in old age. And Judah was supposed to, he, he was supposed to arrange for her to be taken care of, and he wasn't doing his job. So she comes up with a plan to pretend she was a temple pro, or a, a, a prostitute, a religious prostitute, a cultic prostitute, and he, like no big deal, goes and sleeps with her and she ends up getting pregnant. It all is revealed that he was the one. But this was a, it's such an unusual story. Why does it break up the flow of Joseph? But here's the deal. It was to show that these Jewish men were becoming just like the Canaanites. God had to take them out and send them to Egypt. Because here's the deal. The Egyptians were very prejudiced against shepherders. They were, in their eyes, unclean, distasteful, and they were kept separate. Not that the Jews didn't try to take on their gods. We see that did happen. But there was a lot more isolation where the Jews were kept separate and then eventually enslaved. But that was there to show that God needed to get them out. There's several stories in there where you just see these, these, these brothers were not good guys. Joseph was the cream of the crop, and they hated him for it. But God was using their evil to do something good, to save the Jews. So he, but here's the deal. Who rejected Joseph? Jewish men did. Do you see what's starting to happen here? God's provided a deliverer because God does send him into Egypt. And after all this suffering he goes through, he ends up being third in charge. He's the one who ends up you know, getting the dreams from the Lord so that he gets the nation of Egypt ready with all this food so that when the famine, the worldwide famine hits, eventually his brothers come down because they're so bad off, their father sends them down to get food. And then the whole story is unveiled where Joseph finally unveils himself to them and, and it ends up where they come down and they're delivered from this worldwide famine. They're, they're taken care of in Egypt. God sent Joseph ahead on purpose. Joseph himself said that in Genesis 50, 20. What you meant for evil, this is what he's saying to his brothers, God caused for good that the nation might be saved. And the nation at that point of the Jews, you know how big it was? 70. Stephen says 75 because he includes Joseph's kids and grandkids. Because you'll see that. That's one of the things. Oh, he, he's, he's quite, he says 75. It's because he, in, the, in the Septuagint, the Hebrew scriptures that are translated into Greek, the Septuagint said 75 because they included Joseph's grandkids that were born in Egypt. There you go. Little Bible difficulty solved for you. <laughs> but, but God's deliverer was rejected by his own Jewish brothers. Stephen is starting to set the stage to show that God's greatest deliverer, Jesus Christ, 
Even though he was rejected, it doesn't mean that God rejected him. It meant that they were evil, just like Joseph's brothers. And it's going to happen again when he talks about Moses. The same theme. Because Moses was not, he was rejected by who? In the 40 years of wandering? By the Jews many times. His own brothers. So, again, that's the first taste of why Stephen is saying this. He's saying God's deliverer sent Joseph, right? God's, he was rejected the first time, and yet God used him to save him, and he was accepted the second time. See that there? Yes, that should start making things click about what's going to happen. When Jesus comes again, Zechariah says that he's going to return to the same place where he ascended from. Jesus said that in Acts. The angel said, hey, why are you looking up? He's going to come back to the same place on the Mount of Olives. Well, that's right out of Zechariah. It says that, he, that they're going to look on him who they have pierced, and they will mourn. That's repentance. Him whom they have what? Pierced. Right? This is, this is so cool. We see all these these you know, prophecies coming together, but it says that he's going to land on the Mount of Olives, it's going to divide in two, and he's going to set things straight. But the second time he comes is when the Jews will recognize him. Isn't it cool? Do you see that theme? There's some dots being connected here. But here he's setting the stage to say, look, you missed God's deliverer, Jesus Christ. It just like Joseph was rejected the first time, even though, and God still used him to save the Jews. Let me just keep reading this so we can keep going through it. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. Yeah, verse 9, thank you. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions. I mean, think about this. I know we have to, we have to, he's referring to a story, so we have to think about the story. He wasn't just sold to Egypt and within a year he's the, you know, guy in charge saving the nation. This probably was about a 20-year process. Enough for him to get married and have kids and go through all the sufferings before he got to that point. He went as probably a teen. And then, so we got to understand, he went through, so he mentioned, he, he was, he was a, a part of a, a clan living in, in Canaan, a small clan, 70 people, and, and well, not even 70 at that time probably. And he's, he's sent, he's, he's beaten by his brothers. They were going to kill him, but one of the brothers talks him out of it. And they sold him to Midianites, traitors, taken out of the land at least 120 miles away, maybe even further, to, to a land of Egypt, a foreign land, a foreign culture, foreign language, foreign gods, all by himself. No cell phone, no emails, no letter writing. They thought he was dead. Even though they sold him to the Midianites, they all thought he was dead because when he shows up, they go, we thought you were dead. Dad thought he was dead for sure because he was deceived, but even they thought, the brothers thought he was dead. How could he survive all that as a slave? But God delivered him. God's hand was on him. And gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh. He ends up from a slave to standing in front of the king of Egypt. Who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. So though rejected, yet he's vindicated by God. The Jews, again, the patriarchs, his, his own brothers were the ones who rejected him. And yet he's vindicated and he's in place to act as God's deliverer. Verse 11, 
Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction. And our fathers couldn't find any food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers. Notice he keeps saying fathers, 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 because what, what did he call the Sanhedrin, all the ones there? Brothers and fathers. All right, don't, don't miss that connection, <laughs> okay? So these fathers, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's like, what's going on here? After, you know, we see Joseph is just weeping, and, you know, it's in, it's, he's, Joseph is one of, he's one of the top three guys in the, in the nation, the mightiest empire of the time, by the way. And so, yeah, gets Pharaoh's attention. He goes, what is it? He goes, this is my family. And Pharaoh provides, provides sanctuary for them. Invite them down. Bring them on down. We'll give you your own part of your land, of our land. And it was good land. It was in the delta. So they could raise their, their, their live, livestock. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all, and Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Okay, he's just walking through history. He's, he's walking, he's taking them on a tour of Scripture to say, yeah, God provided sanctuary. So Jacob goes down there. His family is saved. And, and it's not just a quick trip. They actually end up living there and dying there. But Joseph and, his, and the fathers, the patriarchs, all their bones were taken up out of land when the exodus happened. So jumping forward 400 years. And they were buried, they were buried in the tomb in Shechem. You're like, wait a second. Oh, gosh. I thought the only place that Abraham bought was in, was in uh, oh, gosh. Down the southern part. What's the main? Oh, my. Hebron. He bought a little cave there for his burial for Sarah and himself. Well, that's true, but here it says that he also bought something up in Shechem, and, we, and it, was, it was evidently it was Jacob who, who bought that. Well, it turns out, biblical scholars say that he just, it was probably that Jacob had to rebuy it because, you know, if, if Abraham, because remember, what was Abraham, what was his way of life? It was a nomad. He was, he was a shepherd. He was, he was moving. So you buy some land, and after a generation, because how long did Abraham live? 175 years. So you buy it as a 100-year-old, and 75 years later, I mean, you know, you've bought it up in Shechem, but you have your burial. It's forgotten. So they have to rebuy it, okay? Please, this is one of the things that comes up in the scriptures. People want to know, well, how do you match those two? They just say, well, he had probably just, or Jacob probably had to rebuy it. So let's go back to this here. So, so we see that, that Joseph, God's deliverer, Right? He's rejected and persecuted by his brothers, yet God uses him to save the Jews. That, that's the theme that's going to be ongoing here. Matter of fact, the next person is now Moses, the next great leader of, of Israel, the next great deliverer in verses 17 through 43. Again, the same thing, rejected by the Jews. Okay, he'll be, you'll see the theme is that he's rejected by the Jews, yet God used Moses when he comes the second time to be their deliverer to save the Jews. So verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, 
the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. Times changed. Good situation at the first part. Joseph's alive, but we don't know when it happened, but within maybe a generation, five generations or something, and there's another uh, pharaoh that comes up and he says, uh, ah, who are, what's going on? This is a bad situation. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. There's too many of these slaves. They could overthrow us. And we see that story in, in Exodus. Matter of fact, let's make sure they don't keep growing. So from now on, when a, when a, baby is, a male baby is born, they're to be killed. All right, so now we're drawn right into Exodus now. The nation's growing in Exodus 1. It's enslaved. In Exodus 2, there's persecution by Pharaoh. At this time, all right, Moses was born. And he was beautiful in God's sight. Now, remember, Moses, he, what, what was one of the charges against Stephen? He blasphemed God and Moses. So now he's going to start saying some things about Moses to say, no, that's actually not, I don't think poorly of Moses. Here's what I think of Moses. Moses was beautiful in God's sight. Oh, that, that could refer to, he was a good looking dude, but he's, he's special. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, they, they couldn't keep this baby silent anymore. And, they, and he's gonna, they had to do something to either kill him or to save him. We know the story where he's put in the little basket and he's put in the river. And who finds him? Pharaoh's daughter. Oh, that was a coincidence, right? No, God's providence. But, he was, but when he was exposed in verse 21, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. So he goes from being a, the child of a slave to Pharaoh's court. God has, has brought this, just brought this amazing deliverer and is going to provide training and, and, and provide for him to raise up and get this deliverer ready. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. What is Stephen's estimation of Moses? Hi, good looking, well-trained, smart, and the wisdom of the Egyptians, if you know anything about, they were great builders, and what they knew about science and math, they knew a lot, and he was instructed in all of it. This guy was royalty. He had a high view of Moses. So, again, he's countering, he doesn't blaspheme against Moses, but again, he continues, verse 23, when he was 40 years old, he came, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. I need to do something. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. I'm, I'm going to stand up for him, and here's the deliverer stepping in. All right? So people talk about maybe he did it too soon. He didn't do the way God wanted to, so God had to put it off, his actual deliverance. I don't think that's a point being made here, because look what happens next. He says this. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they didn't understand. He thought he was doing the right thing. He viewed himself as God's deliverer, God's man to do something about their situation. Isn't that interesting? 
Verse 26, and on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them. So he stops injustice over here, defends and, and kills an Egyptian who's, who's mistreating a slave. Then two Jews are having a quarrel, a serious quarrel, and he acts as what? A mediator, a peacemaker, a reconciler. He's saying, hey, I, I am, I, yeah, I'm in the right place with the right resources, the right time. To, I want to act as someone to help. What happens? They didn't understand. Verse 26, and on the following day, he appeared to them, tried to reconcile them. He says, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? Verse 27, but the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside. To Moses pushed him aside. Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Who's rejecting him right now? The Jews, his own brothers. You're not the boss of me. Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Uh-oh. He killed an Egyptian. I'm assuming he didn't want it broadcast. But the word's getting out, and it's not favorable word. It's one thing if it was an Egyptian to say, hey, I heard you killed an Egyptian. We're going to come get you. He was hearing it from his own Jewish brothers. Who do you think you are? You're going to kill us too? Oh. At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. So we see he's rejected the first time. He offers himself as the deliverer, actually. But he's rejected by his own brothers, his own people. Yeah, a little premature, but we, God has a plan. He's working it out. But, but again, Stephen is building a case saying, look, there's a pattern here, guys. Do you recognize it? Maybe this Jesus who you rejected, you shouldn't have. Maybe you need to listen to my message. Now, when 40 years had passed, verse 30, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness. Now we're at Exodus chapter 3. In the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire, in a bush, we have this, this incredible meeting, this calling of Moses to be, to be the deliverer. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. So again, he's, he's showing he's, he's in line with the scriptures. And he, he thinks highly of Moses. He knows Moses' history. He's not slamming him in any way. And he, see, and he says, this is God's deliverer. I see that. I, I, I admit it too. I recognize this. Then the Lord, in verse 33, then the Lord uh, said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Okay. Holy ground. The temple should start coming into mind here, because to them, the temple was holy ground. Matter of fact, the innermost sanctuary was called what? The Holy of Holies. That was holy ground. Only one person could go in there one time per year, right? The high priest. Again, this is just seeds or should be coming to mind. That place outside the land of Israel, that was holy ground because that's where the Lord was. There wasn't a temple yet. God, God, was, God is God and wherever he is, it's holy. Take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy ground. 
I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. You're the one I'm going to use to be the deliverer. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man... God sent both as a ruler and a redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. See what he's doing here. Moses was that deliverer, but he had been rejected. But God still sent him, sent him back. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Who else performed signs and wonders? In front of all the people. Jesus. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. What? He said, Moses, the greatest leader, because he was involved in leading Israel. He was involved in getting the law of God. He's one of the highest, they have the highest estimation of Moses. And here's, here's Moses saying, Watch out for the prophet who's going to come. He's going to be like me. So when we look at the life of Jesus doing signs and wonders, when he's the Sermon on the Mount, what does he do in the Sermon on the Mount? He's just going through Mosaic law and showing the heart of the law. It said that he sat down and people gathered around him on this mount. It's the setting is Mosaic. The setting is, is because at the, time there was an, uh, at the time when Jesus came, there was an expectation uh, of the Messiah who would come. And they were expecting the second Moses to lead them on a, in a, essentially a second exodus. But in their mind, it was freedom from the Romans because Moses led them out from freedom from the Egyptians. But God, Jesus says, no, there's a greater enemy I got to take care of. But he performed all these signs and wonders, and he showed he had a mastery of the law. Matter of fact, the greatest teachers of Israel couldn't answer him. Every question they threw out at him, he answered perfectly. But when he turned the tables, they were stumped. Look at Matthew chapter 23, or 22. Where you just see them there, uh, they didn't, no one dared ask him any more questions because they couldn't answer him. But that's what's happening here. This prophet, there's another thing. There was a prophet that was going to come. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He's talking about Mount Sinai when he was, when he was talking to God and he was getting the law. There's angels involved in this as intermediaries. It's just stuff that, you know, just hard for us to even understand. This is just incredible. This Moses, this incredible man, And yet he was rejected. He received the living oracles to give us, God's living word. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. And again, he's talking about different times in the Exodus wanderings where they said, can't we go back? God just brought us out here to kill us. Moses, what in the world are you doing? We'll go back there because at least we had food to eat. Oh, it was so good. Matter of fact, at Mount Sinai, what was it that they, what was the, what was this thing that came out of the fire? Because even Aaron says, it just came out of the fire. What was it? It was a bull. And what was that? Well, that was one of the main gods in Egypt. They'd just gone back to Egypt. 
Here's God's deliverer. They knew God's ways. They, they didn't have a, you know, God's word yet, but they knew it was part of their culture, their, their upbringing, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And yet they were so quick to run back to Egypt and to reject God and his deliverer. That, you guys can't miss that theme. We have to read this. We have to think like Jews, and he's making a very Jewish case here. Instead of saying, well, I don't blaspheme. I believe in God. I believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jason. Oh, I, 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 Moses, yeah, he, was the, he doesn't answer it like we would answer it. He answers it like a Jew who's answering from the scriptures using narrative. It's masterful. Our fathers, verse 39, refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. Into their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. How long was he up on Mount Sinai? 40 days. So yeah, they're wondering what's going on. But here's the deal. Was it silent up on the mount? <laughs> no, it was thunder. It was loud. It's scary. And, but they were so quick to forget. What had just happened before they got to Mount Sinai? The 10 plagues. Supernatural signs. You know, the whole land is in darkness, but the land where the Jews lived in Goshen, what happened there? There was light. You know, the, all, all this stuff is happening, and yet they were protected all the way through. Who killed the firstborn? Did the Jews go around killing the firstborn in Egypt? No, they just stayed in their home, hid under the blood like they were supposed to, and they were saved. And then they go through the Red Sea. It's divided. They walk through on dry land. And then the waters collapse on the, the army chasing them in chariots. And then they're, you know, before they get to Mount Sinai, they're, they're provided water and food. It's like they're so quick to forget. They're so quick to forget to miss God's guidance and provision for them and their deliverer. And they made, verse 41, and they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol. And were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away the picture of giving them over in a sense. And gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices? During the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? Did you, did you offer right sacrifices? As the question comes, comes out of Amos. He's, the answer is No. Their sacrifices were two false gods. Again, what happened in the temple? Sacrifices. Okay? So he's starting to say it's sacrifices. Jewish men were offering sacrifices that were false sacrifices. O house of Israel, you took up the tent of Moloch. And the star of your God, Rephon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. He has just blown this up because he's talking about, he's quoting Amos here, and he's gotten big. But okay, you understand, what was the tabernacle called? The tent. The tabernacle in the wilderness that God told Moses, here's the design of it, and it's going to be set up in the middle of your camp. It's going to be right in the middle. It was three on to north, three, three tribes to the south, three to the east, to the west. It's going to be right in the middle. It was called the tent. Don't you know, the notice here? And, and later on, the tabernacle becomes what? The temple. 
right? It's set aside. Matter of fact, they saved it. It was actually stored inside, you know, folded up and all that inside the temple. But this tent, he, he's drawing connections. When, when there's a tent here, did they turn to the tent of God or the tent of a false god? The Jews turned to a tent of a false god, the tent of Moloch. And one of the ways of worshiping, this was to sacrifice children. Vile, disgusting. So again, he's building a case. You make a big deal about the temple. Uh, first of all, God doesn't need a temple. He's going to say that in a minute. And second of all, uh, you've the sacrifices and all that. You've the Jew. We have a history of offering bad sacrifices to false gods, even if we had the temple. Just thing after thing, he's bringing up to answer these charges that have been raised against him. Matter of fact, that's where he starts kicking into, into in verse 44 and 50. He continues this theme about the tent that was abused by the Jews and misinterpreted uh, as, as God's place. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. That was the tabernacle. Just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. They had this, and yet they offered Unacceptable sacrifices, despite having it. Having the temple did not guarantee that they were worshiping correctly. Do you guys see the point he's trying to raise here? Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua at the end of, of the wilderness wanderings when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before the, our fathers. So it was until the days of David. The tabernacle existed until David. So another 400 years of a tabernacle. There was no temple yet. And then until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. God, I want to make you a permanent temple. And God actually had plans to make a permanent temple, but it was never to be the temple that contained God. It was just a place, the one place God said, this is where you can offer sacrifices. I don't want you going to all these other high places, wherever you want. I want you to do it the way I want you to. But it was never meant to be that which God was contained in. The Jews had shifted their focus. Again, Stephen's talking here. And Stephen's showing him, look, the temple is not the key. God and worshiping him correctly is the key. That was the whole point that Jesus was making about the temple. You know, he'd destroy it and I'll raise it again in three days. What was he talking about? He was talking about himself and his body would be raised. Because, as a matter of fact, he told, you know, he told uh, when he was talking about the, uh, to the woman, the Samaritan, the woman at the well. He says, there'll be a coming a day when you won't worship at, at any temple. He's talking about, you'll have to believe in me. Think about that. What, it was, what he's saying, what Jesus was saying to this, because the Samaritans believed that the temple shouldn't be in Jerusalem. It was supposed to be over here in Samaria, a few miles away on a different hill. That was the real one. Now, they were wrong, but he's saying, look, there will come a day when the, the temple, you're not going to need the temple. He's making a point, I'm the one you have to believe in. I'm the one who's the a fulfillment of the sacrifices. I'm the one you have to worship. It's not where, it's who. So we see him just raising these issues to show that, that God, it, it, it's, they're, they're getting things turned around here because in the past, Jews themselves had abused it. Just because they had the temple, they didn't use it correctly. 
David found favor and he wanted to build him a house. So verse 47, it says, but it was Solomon, his son, who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, and what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Even when Solomon was going to build it, Solomon himself, you know, this isn't to contain God. That was never the purpose of the temple. It was to be a location where you could worship God, but it wasn't to be revered as if it was God. They had charged him with blasphemy against God and Moses and against the temple. And what is he doing? He's showing, look, you guys are, you guys are missing the point. And matter of fact, you are just like the Jews who all along rejected God's deliverers. Jesus even made the same claim. You killed the prophets who came. Prophets, were, they had a really bad lifespan. If you're a prophet in Israel, you'd most likely be killed by your own people for, being, to tell, for telling the truth. You're persecuted. What happened to Isaiah? They say he was sawn in half. Isaiah, the most righteous man. So, it's just, so he's just indicting them and just showing you've got it wrong. But it's all biblical. He's true to the scriptures. So I'm going to end with his indictment in the next uh, few verses, and then we'll go to what the consequences of his speech, right? It's not the outcome we would say is the right outcome, but God used him to, to just set the stage for worldwide evangelism. We just see it start happening here. So in, in verses 51 through 53, we see Stephen then turns the tables and indicts these rebellious Jews. These leaders, these are the highest men in Israel, and he indicts them to their face. He indicts them for leading the way in rebellion and idolatry and in rejecting God's deliverer. You stiff-necked people. He's not quoting God anymore. Now he's using a quote from the Old Testament, but he's saying it to them. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart, that is like a punch to the face to a Jew, to a religious Jew, to the priests and religious leaders of Israel. He is holding back no punches here. Uncircumcised in heart, you're just like a Gentile. And uncircumcised in ears, you do not hear God. You say you know the word, you haven't been listening. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Who's on trial now? Oh, man. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. You say you have the law. You say you have the right God. You say you have the right temple. But I'm saying, he's saying, you did not see him when he came and you are indicted. You are murderers of the righteous one. Whew. He has laid out a just a biblical 
scriptural foundation for Christianity. And that Jesus, though rejected, he's just like Joseph, he's just like Moses. He was rejected by his own people, yet God sent. He was the deliverer. Jesus is the prophet, the one they were supposed to look forward to because they had the scriptures and they missed it. So we'll look and see their reaction. It's not surprising, and we'll see what happens because of it uh, next week. But uh, it's amazing. I mean, to me, again, here's a man who knew God's word. He knew it. But because he knew it, he could be an evangelist. People want to know, how can I be really good at evangelism? I need to take this class and that class and this class. You know, and classes are certainly helpful, but you know what the number one way to evangelize is? Know God's word. Know God's big story. Know the truth so well so when you're talking to somebody, you can point them to the truth. That's the best. Read and know and obey God's word. Know the story. Be so convinced about who Jesus is and the hope we have that you can't not talk about him. And, 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 and be a person who loves people. Again, don't forget, Stephen was known as a person who cared, who served the body, had a great reputation outside. Be a person like that. Be a hero to somebody else in the faith, right? That's, that's my, that's, again, I'm telling you guys, that's what I want desperately for myself, but I want that for all of us. We need to be those who drag others along sometimes, who need hope and help. We need to let them ride on our faith at times because people need help just like we do at times, right? So that's, that's, that's something for us to think about, and we'll continue uh, through him and get into uh, what God has next in, in the flow of God's history. And I pray that we, too, in Bethany, would be doing our part, because we have a part to play. We're not here by accident. God wants us to be his salt and light to advance the gospel, advance his kingdom, all right? So let's pray, and then we'll uh, close up the evening. Lord, thank you for our time together Thank you for Bruce and Kimmy leading us in good worship, good songs of faithful people of the past, celebrating your goodness to us, celebrating the hope we have in you, Lord Jesus, and the salvation found in you alone, and and the rock-solid confidence we have that you are the one who saves us. You are the one who is with us day after day. You are the one who's going to return to reward your own and to judge the world. Lord, you are so good. And Lord, I just pray that, that that would be true, that people would see that in their own lives. Like Stephen, who's so convinced, I know whom I have believed in. And Lord, he did. And Lord, I pray the same for us, that we'd have a confidence and a joy that can't be contained and that it would overflow in the conversations of life that we have with people. So Lord, help us to be uh, just people who are faithful to be used by you for your glory and for your sake, for your kingdom and for the good of others. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you for our time, and I just pray that your word would continue to work in our hearts. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all, and uh, see you guys next week.